I'm Derek Thompson, longtime writer with The Atlantic Magazine on tech, culture, and politics. There is a lot of noise out there, and my goal is to cut through the headlines, loud tweets, and hot takes in my new podcast, Plain English. I'll talk to some of the smartest people I know to give you clear viewpoints and memorable takeaways. Plain English starts November 16th. Listen for free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available. And listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. I hope you all had a very, very good weekend. A lot to get into. So I'm going to save most of my Patriots stuff for the next pod because we're going to have Matt Hamachek on again to run through the third and the fourth episode of the Dynasty, get into all that with him. And I have some Patriots thoughts as the offseason is now here at the NFL and the Patriots are going to have to make some real interesting decisions in the couple of we- in the next couple of weeks here. So I want to save some of my thoughts on the Pats for that pod. But we had both winter teams playing on Saturday Saturday night. It was a fun night. Had both of the TVs going for the Bruins that started, of course, at 7, then the Celtics in that night game at 8.30. So I want to start with the Celtics. I'll get into the Bruins as well because the Bruins are a team right now where you have to at least feel slightly worried about, right? Because they have not played well since the All-Star break. The Celtics are playing really well right now. So let's go with the team that's playing well, and then we'll go to the team that has some question marks. So... The Celtics right now are an absolute wagon. They've now gone on this eight-game winning streak, and during that streak, their net rating is 18.7, which means they're outscoring teams by nearly 19 points per 100 possessions, which is just a ridiculous number. And if you just look at that in terms of the raw number, it's 145 points. They've outscored teams by 145 points in the last eight games. The team that is closest to them in their last eight games is Minnesota at 119. So the Celtics have been dominant as a team. They're shooting 52.9% from the field and 40.9% from deep. That's like everybody on the team is Steph Curry right now in terms of what their numbers are during this eight-game winning streak. And of course, they play a Knicks team that was banged up yesterday. And you can say, well, Ananobi's not there. Randall's not there. And you could say, look at the competition during the streak, sure. But the Celtics, and look, the Knicks don't exactly fit into this category, but some of the other teams during this streak are really bad, right? The Wizards and the Grizzlies. But one thing I'll say about the Celtics team, if you juxtaposed it to last year's team, 
They are 18 and 1 when they play teams in the bottom 10 in the NBA in point differential. This is via cleaning the glass. That's a 947 winning percentage, which is the second best in the entire NBA. So they don't lose to bad teams, right? The Celtics were good last year in terms of their record against bottom 10 opponents, but not great. They were 20 and 8, which was 7th, so pretty good, but not elite like this year. Milwaukee, by the way, they got the top seed over the Celtics last year. Remember, in the Eastern Conference playoffs, they were 23-5 and five against bottom 10 teams in point differential. The Celtics were 20-8. and eight. So that's a big difference in terms of why the Celtics didn't get that number one seed. So to me, this is just about maturity. And like I said, the Knicks don't fall into this category. But that's a very depleted team right now without OG and without Randall. It would have been a really big disappointment if the Celtics had lost to the Knicks. Not to say that there was in jeopardy. They dominated that game. But you get my point. So they just don't have bad losses this season like they did last year. And the hope is, well, hey, you're building up these good habits, right? Where you look at it from the perspective of in the playoffs at times, in the past, you could look at the Celtics and say they play around with their food, right? We talked about it with B-Rob around the trading deadline or excuse me, the all-star break that the series against Atlanta shouldn't have gone six games. It shouldn't have been a seven-game series against Philadelphia. And you look at the regular season last year, you can go back and say, hey, some of those bad habits came when you were playing poorly against bad teams during the regular season, right? This Celtics team last year, they lost twice to the Chicago Bulls. They lost to the Magic three times. And that was a Magic team that, yeah, there were signs they were going to be good this season, but not last year. And you lost to them three times, right? They lost to Washington. They lost to Utah, who had given up on its season at that point in time. Not Utah at the beginning of the year when they were playing well. They lost to Utah at the end of the season. They lost to the Houston Rockets last year when the Rockets were one of the worst teams in the NBA. They have had one of those losses this entire season. One of them. That weird game against Charlotte where Tatum went nuts in the first half and then somehow things completely fell apart at the end of the game for the Celtics. That's the only game that they've lost to a team where you can look up and say, hey, they really shouldn't have lost that game. Or they they fell asleep. Something like that. Like they screwed this one up in terms of they weren't ready for the second half of the game. Because if you look at the Celtics this season... 11 of their 12 losses have come to teams with at least a play-in spot right now. 11 of the 12 at least have a play-in spot right now. So this is part of the reason that if you look at the Celtics right now, there is a wider gap between the Celtics and the two-seed in the Eastern Conference right now than the gap between the one-seed in the Western Conference and the eight-seed in the Western Conference. Think about how crazy that is. Just let that marinate. It's the maturity of this team where it's like, okay, if the Celtics had done what they did last year and didn't show up to every game and didn't just beat the shit out of bad teams, well, they would be in a position where they were competing for this number one seed right now. And I know there's more of a margin of error with the talent, but they're not messing around this year like at times last year they did. So now, they're about to embark on this stretch here where some other questions about postseason issues of the past, I don't want to say they can be answered, but you can work on some of these issues coming up, right? So on Tuesday, they play a depleted Philly team that just has all these injuries. But after that, Dallas, Golden State, at Denver, at Phoenix. Like, that is a hell of a stretch for the Celtics. This is a stretch where we saw in the finals two years ago, the Celtics couldn't close out game four. They win game four. They go up 3-1 against the Warriors. They win the championship. They blow the fourth quarter lead, right? They couldn't close out that game. And we saw this season when the Celtics matched up against the Warriors, it looked like they were going to run them out of the building. They couldn't close that one out, and Curry hits the moon ball, right? 
with Denver. The Celtics couldn't win that game where Denver came into the garden, beat the Celtics. The Denver Nuggets executed late, late in that game with the two-man game of Jokic and Jamal Murray. The Celtics couldn't execute, and Tatum had that bad play on the right side there where they had an opportunity to score. Tatum couldn't do anything, and he took a bad shot, right? So because the Celtics are right now number two in the NBA in clutch record, and that just means when the game is within five points with five minutes or more or five minutes or fewer remaining in the game. So their record is good in terms of their total record, but they've lost clutch games to the Nuggets, to the Warriors, to the Wolves, and to the Thunder in those type of games, right? Where they had opportunities to win, they lost. And look, there's no shame in losing to those games, to those teams rather, but it's just the questions of, hey, when you get into a tight game, against a good team, will your offense execute? Because that's been the issue for this team going back for a couple of seasons now when they get into the postseason. So as crazy as this sounds, and I know you're going to say, Brian, you're an idiot, but I'd rather the Celtics have some tight games against the Warriors, against the Mavericks, against Denver, than blow them out. Because I want to find out what happens final five minutes of the game It's a two-point game. It's a tie game. The Celtics are down by three, whatever the case may be in terms of just a clutch game. I want to see the Celtics out-execute an elite team. Denver, I would put in that category. I would put Dallas in that category right now. The Warriors, I know their record doesn't indicate that, but you beat the Warriors. The Warriors have something on the Celtics going back to the finals a couple of years ago. You beat the Warriors in a clutch game. I would be ecstatic over that, right? Even if they play like shit for the majority of the game and then all of a sudden the final five minutes, it's like, Oh, whoa, high pick and roll. Derek White, Chris Stapps, Porzingis. Porzingis pops, he gets a three. Jason Tatum gets a screen from Derek White. And then Derek White, as as the roll man, catches the ball in the short roll. Hits Jalen Brown for a wide open corner three. He hits it. It's just like well-executed stuff. I would be more pumped about that than, say, Tatum has 45 points and the Celtics blow out the Warriors. I'm telling you I would because this could be something where I say, okay, this is something you can duplicate and replicate in the postseason, and it's something this team has had an issue with. So I'm excited for that stretch, really excited. Now, the other thing that I wanted to look at with this team right now is they obviously have a unified motivation to win a championship, right? But they also have individual motivations as well, right? And one has become clear over, I would say, the past two weeks and change. Okay, so before I get into the new motivation... Think about some of the guys in terms of individual motivations, right? Before I get to the one that has just sort of presented itself over the past couple of weeks. Drew Holiday, right? He wants to get back to a championship and prove or get back to winning a championship because he wants to prove the Bucs are wrong. Oh, you think Lillard's a better player for your team than I would have been? Okay, well, now I'm going to your biggest competitor after the trade from Portland, and I'm going to beat you. I'm going to prove that I'm your missing piece. Porzingis. This guy had really been questioned. How's Porzingis going to do as the number three option? Will he be able to handle that? Being the third guy on the team? How would he handle it? Porzingis isn't a winner. I mean, Porzingis watched his Dallas team that he got traded from go to the conference finals after they traded him. And at that point in time, in the NBA, it was kind of perceived like, maybe Porzingis just isn't a winning player. And he had to go play in Washington for a couple of years. I wouldn't wish that on any NBA player. You're going to go play in front of that Washington crowd for an organization that stinks. And if he stuck around this year, he would have been teammates with Jordan Poole, right? Like it would have been horrible. But Porzingis has a motivation to prove he's a winner, to prove he can be part of 
a winning organization. I think part of the reason you see Porzingis smiling all the time is he's getting a lot of credit like, oh, Porzingis, he's the difference maker. I've said it time after time. So when he gets that recognition as like the missing piece, it's like this, I haven't been talked about the past couple of years in the NBA. In fact, I've been ignored for the past few years. Prior to that, I was criticized. Now it's the opposite, right? He went from like, he's the problem in Dallas to, hey, we're not even talking about this guy because he's in Washington to, hey, he's playing for the best team in the NBA. And the reason they're the best team in the NBA is the addition of him. So it's completely changed with Porzingis, right? So there's all these different motivations. And now it's Hatem. The MVP stuff is really starting to creep up here where on FanDuel, his odds now, they've actually gotten longer over the past couple of days since the All-Star break. He's now up to plus 3,700 on FanDuel in terms of his MVP odds. He's behind Jokic, he's behind Shea, he's behind Luka, and he's behind Giannis. We had a conversation with Tim Bontemps, if you missed that pod, about his straw poll that does the MVP. At that time, Tatum was sixth, and that's because partially Embiid, we didn't really, when all the votes were coming in for that straw poll, you didn't know Embiid's health situation going forward. You just knew that Embiid, Embiid was in a situation where basically he was going to be disqualified at that point in time. But Donovan Mitchell was getting a lot of love and all that. But you get my point. It's like, right now Tatum's considered to be like fifth or sixth. In the MVP odds, he's fifth on Fandle. But he's like the fifth or the sixth guy. Where it felt like Donovan Mitchell was getting some momentum. But anyway, so the thing about the MVP with Tatum, there really isn't a statistical argument for him right now. And I think it's worth... The reason I bring up the plus 3,700, I just think it's worth it for the value. Like if a lot of stuff goes wrong, he could get it, right? Like if, like it's, the reason it's plus 3,700, it's a long shot, but I'm just saying, sprinkle a little bit on that, right? I mean, come on, a little bit of money on that, you you can win big if something happens with Tatum. But anyway, if you look at the raw numbers, it just doesn't really match up. So first of all, win shares per 48 minutes, if you're looking for advanced stuff, Shea is one, Jokic is two, Giannis is four, Luka is five, Tatum is down at 17. In fact, Kristaps Porzingis on his own team is higher in that. He's eighth in win shares per 48 minutes. So the impact metrics don't really have Tatum compared to these other MVP candidates. And then you look at Luka, Shea, and Giannis. They're in the top three in scoring. 34.3, 31.1, 30.8. Tatum's down at 26.9, which is ninth. Not bad. It's really good. But you get the point. This is the MVP. Now, yes, Jokic is scoring less points per game than Tatum. At 26, but he's also fourth in rebounds at 12.2, and he's fourth in assists at 9.1, and he's getting a triple double like every game now. So you get to, there's not really a comparison between Jokic and Tatum in terms of the stats. So the raw stats aren't there for Tatum. The impact stats aren't there for Tatum when you compare him with this group. So those guys are far ahead of him in terms of what they're doing right now. And I would say this too about those other MVP candidates they have to carry more of a burden, right? Jokic doesn't play well, odds are the Nuggets are going to lose. Shea doesn't play well, OKC is going to lose, right? Like, Luka doesn't play well, the Mavericks are going to lose. Same thing with Giannis, right? You look at Tatum, it's like, if Tatum Tatum plays poorly, the Celtics can still win. And Tatum doesn't even have to have, like, an A-plus game for the Celtics to win. Like, the game against the Knicks that we all watched on Saturday night, Tatum at 19. I don't think he played poorly. I'm not saying that. I'm just pointing out the fact that he doesn't have to lift the same amount of, or he doesn't have to take on the same amount of workload as these other guys do. So, anyway, when... The Bonteb straw poll came out. I think Tatum felt like, hey, I am one of the best players in the league. And he felt like, hey, I should be in the conversation more for the MVP. And he started to over the past week. Stephen A. Smith, Shanae Agumike, Kendrick Perkins, right? Analysts saying that, hey, Tatum should be the guy. 
Because they look at it from the traditional thing of best player, best team, even though he doesn't really, as I said, match up with these other guys in terms of the actual counting stack stats, the impact stats, the workload type of thing. So then Tatum does this interview over the All-Star break with Malika Andrews, where he says he is the best player in the league. And he's never said that before this year. He said it to Malika Andrews during that interview. And I think now what's happening is he feels like, in some sense, he's not getting enough credit. He's getting angry. And I think his teammates are understanding this, too. Because when you look at it, when Tatum made those comments, it was sort of uncharacteristic of Tatum to point out, like, when he was asked about being the face of the league and all these other guys were getting brought up, he said, hey, if I win a championship, I'm going to have something to say about that, right? So it's almost like he realizes right now, he's sort of, and he's, I'm not saying that he's sacrificing a ton, but his raw numbers aren't where they were last year. He's averaging north of 30 points per game. He has said he knows he can average 30 points per game because he's already done it. But his point is just like, I do feel like there's a sense from Tatum where he knows he's not getting sort of the credit maybe that he deserves in some sense. So that's why he makes those comments. But I think what he realized when he's also talking through this at the podium, hey, if I win a championship, if I lead this team to the promised land, I am going to be mentioned in that group. So I think that it's, I think it's just a weird time for Tatum right now where he's not really, he's like a fringy MVP candidate and he feels like he should be getting more credit, but he knows the bigger goal is winning a championship, right? So, and now you're seeing his teammates sort of back him and realize like, hey, maybe Tatum's like pissed off about this, right? Because you have Kristaps Porzingis basically the other day sticking up for Tatum after the game where he said that, he knows that Tatum could average 30 points if he wanted to, but he's not. He could say F it and go average 30, but he's not because he's doing what's best for the team, right? And so when you look at this and I would say the biggest thing that I would say about Tatum, which I'm happy about, is he's really not forcing it, right? And I think that's a sign of maturity. So after the break, the Knicks game, of course, Saturday night, he took nine fewer shots than Jalen. Because Jalen was feeling it, right? Jalen was in his own, especially in the first half of that game. And halftime, by the way, I'm watching that ABC halftime show on Saturday night, and they're talking about Tatum. Like, how do they get Tatum going? And they they were saying, oh, he's just missing shots he normally hits. He barely took any shots. He was three of five. Like, it was like this big concern. Like, oh, why isn't Tatum? Well, why isn't Tatum playing well? The team's playing well. Why do you care? Like, Tatum is just doing what the game sort of dictates him to do. You want him to just hijack the offense? Like, the Celtics were getting whatever they wanted. In fact, the Celtics in the first half against the Knicks, they shot 80% from two-point territory in the first half. What was wrong with the way that Tatum was playing, right? So I felt that was just, like, a weird discussion. How do they get Tatum going? What the fuck are you talking about? The Celtics are going to win this game. Tatum's fine. I, I, I thought that was bizarre. But anyway, the Bulls game on Thursday night, he had five points in the first half. And then he realizes, oh, my scoring's needed. So he has 20 in the second half. And by the way, he got to the free throw line six times in the second half of the game, which just tells you, hey, if I need to get to my spots, I can. And he had that great fall away jump shot where he did sort of like the settle down celebration during that game. So the thing to me about Tatum is just feeling out these games rather than chase the MVP. Because if he was immature, if he was really about individual accolades, even though he's talking about them, if he was about them, he would be chasing points right now. There's no way he would have taken just five shots in the first half against the against the Knicks on a national stage, an ABC game. If Tatum really cared about not playing the game right and cared rather about trying to win the MVP, that would have been a game that he went for. 
in Madison Square Garden, opportunity, make a statement. He would have went nuts in that game, but he didn't. He just dictated what the game sort of gave to him. And I do think that's a maturity thing from Tatum. And I think that's how you know that the dude is all in, in terms of winning a championship. He doesn't care about chasing an MVP. He's down almost three points a game, right? So I would say this, since this MVP stuff has come up, two great signs. Tatum is mad in some sense. He is mad. Like he, you could tell he's mad when he's not mentioned in this stuff, which is great because you can use that as a motivational thing. And I think he's already sort of indicated what that is. I got to win a championship. That's what he said. I'm going to like, if I win a championship, I'm going to have something to say about that. So from a motivational standpoint, this not being really high up in the odds has sort of motivated him. He has a chip on his shoulder for the rest of the season. But the real good sign, as I alluded to in the Knicks and the Bulls game, is he's playing the right way. The other thing that I would say with Tatum is if, is he realizes right now, like he's got something special around him, right? And Tatum now is a stretch where he's going to play Luka, he's going to play Steph, he's going to play Donovan Mitchell, he's going to play Jokic, he's going to play Durant, he's going to play Devin Booker. All top 15 players in the league. Some top five in the case of Luka, Steph, and Jokic, right? So I just look at that and I say, whoa, hold on a second here. Like, this is why I say, maybe you want to sprinkle a little bit on the plus 3,700. What if he outplays the majority of the guys on this list? Okay, that's not going to put him in the same stratosphere as the guys ahead of him in the MVP odds in terms of the raw stats and the impact stats, but it will send a message to the voters like, hey, look what Tatum just did against the best players in the league, right? So on another note, so that's the thing, first thing I want to say about Tatum. On another note, the Celtics, I've referenced this on the pod before. How rare it is to see a team that could win a championship with their profile, right? And what I mean by that, not the dominance, because they're one of the most dominant teams in the NBA. I'll get to that in a second. Not obviously they're the most dominant team in the NBA, but one of the most dominant teams in recent NBA history. I'll get to that in a second. So it is normal for a team to be this good and win a championship. But one thing that's not normal is sort of the profile, right? Because if you look at it right now, going back to Tatum and the MVP stuff, the last two teams to win a championship without a current or a former MVP, the 2019 Raptors and the 2004 Pistons. In 19, the Raptors were third in net rating. The Pistons were second in net rating in 2004. The Celtics, of course, are first right now by a wide margin. That's not going to change by the end of the season. They have such a huge lead when it comes to that. But the reason I bring this up is those teams, and yes, Toronto got some injury luck when Durant went down and then Klay Thompson went down, of course, too, in that series. With the Pistons, they got some luck in the sense that, like, at that point, Kobe and Shaq really hated each other. That team was a complete mess. Kobe took way more shots than Shaq. It was just a mess of a series for L.A. But that doesn't take away what these teams were able to achieve. Because if you don't have the current or the former MVP, you need to have multiple ways to beat teams. So the Pistons, for example, they were a great defense. Unbelievable defense. And then on offense, hey, one night it could be Rip Hamilton. One night it could be Chauncey Billups. One night it could be Rasheed Wallace hitting shots, right? Like those guys were all in. With the Raptors, they had the guy that they were going to play through in Kawhi Leonard. But look at the depth of that team. They had the six guys that averaged in double figures. And they had smart defenders too, especially with Kawhi, Lowry, Gasol, right? Van Fleet was awesome in that series against the Warriors because he was great at getting around screens when he was chasing Curry around. And I think this Celtics team is actually closer to the, 20, uh, the 2019 Raptors team, where they have a guy that can play at a top five level, 
Kawhi could have been an MVP in 17, the year that Russell Westbrook won it with the triple doubles. I don't think the Pistons, they they definitely didn't have a top five player at that time. I mean, thinking back to 04, you had prime McGrady, you had prime Garnett, prime Kobe, prime Duncan, prime Dirk, still pretty close to prime Shaq. No Piston was sniffing the top five. But of course, the Raptors did have a top five guy. But both of those teams... They had motivational reasons to win, and they had scar tissue, right? Rashid, as an individual, had all those tough losses with the Blazers. The Pistons, right? When you look at the Pistons, they were trying to break through, right? The 19 Raptors. Kawhi's pissed at the Spurs. He wants to prove he can win without Greg Popovich and company. Lowry trying to break through after all those losses with DeMar DeRozan when they were known as LeBronto because they couldn't beat LeBron. I mean, LeBron was so disrespectful of them. Remember one time he just like flipped the ball in his hand and shot a three? But anyway... Gasol, he's like a great player of that previous generation, just wanting to get a championship. This is a former defensive player of the year. So this formula to win without a top five player in terms of the, or not a top five player, the formula to win without a current or a former MVP, it's very rare. But if you look at the two most recent examples that have done it, I think the Celtics are in a position where you can see the similarities that they have with these teams. And the thing that the Celtics have, the reason I say they're closer to the 19 Raptors they have a guy that can easily play at a top five level. Kawhi did it for the Raptors in 19. Tatum has done it in the past, and we saw him do it in game seven against the Philadelphia 76ers. And I would argue he did it in games four, five, and six against the Miami Heat before turning his ankle in game seven. Sure, he's, have his, he's had his shortcomings, but I'm just pointing out, you have a guy that could play at a top five level. Okay, the one other big picture note that I was thinking about with the Celtics team, because I could get into some of the individual stuff that happened in that game against the Knicks. Like, one of the things that was awesome is Drew Holiday defensively. And I know, like, Jalen Brunson got his points, but the Celtics did a much better job against Brunson in the second half of that game compared to the first half. Even though Brunson ends up with 15 points in the second half, he's 5 of 12 compared to 7 of 13 in the first half. They just did a much better job with him. And one play stuck out where, basically, (laughs) Drew Holiday... Jalen Brunson's trying to get a handoff, like near the top of the key at the beginning of the possession. Drew Holiday doesn't get it. So Brunson starts running. He gets basically like three screens and tries to get another handoff and couldn't get it. Like the the amount of effort it took defensively from Drew Holiday to be able to do that was just phenomenal in that game. Just absolutely incredible stuff. So that that was, there's a lot of individual stuff that happened in that game that was, like Jalen's start to the game was awesome. Jalen was just feeling it all night. Porzingis, getting it going against the crowd that was booing him and all that. There's a lot of interesting notes from the game, I guess. But in terms of big picture stuff, this team has a chance to go down as a better team than the 2008 championship team if they finish the job. They're now in that stratosphere with the 08 Celtics because they have the 10th best net rating in NBA history right now. They are sandwiched between the 71-72 Lakers and the 14-15 Warriors. That was the first Warriors championship team. Now, the 08 Celtics had the fifth best rating of all time at 11.2. But at this point in the season, the teams have identical 45 and 12 records, right? The Celtics right now have a 10.5 net rating, the current Celtics. That's first in the NBA, as we alluded to, by a wide margin. The 08 team had a 10.3 net rating, which was first. But again, this Celtics team has the edge. This team is first in offense. That team was 10th in offense. This team is third in defense. That team was first in defense. So obviously a big gap between the offenses and then the defenses. That 08 Celtics team was an amazing defense. So my point with this is nobody's touching the 85-86 Celtics in terms of 
the talent when you look at Bill Walton coming off the bench, winning sixth man of the year with Bird, McHale, Parrish, DJ, Danny Ainge, right? They're not touching that team. But this team is on par with the 08 team. Now, and obviously this all means they have to finish the job. We'll get into this in a second here. But the guys were more established, right? Like KG had won an MVP. He was 31. Pierce was 30. Ray was 32. They were prime slash back end prime, I would say. Tatum and Jalen are now entering their prime. And the supporting cast with the big three, Rondo, Posey, our guy Perk, House, Tony Allen, Poe, forgot about Leon Poe, PJ Brown came over, remember, famously during the All-Star break, the game was in New Orleans, they went and recruited PJ Brown, Pearson, Garnett. This one around the top two guys in terms of Tatum and Brown, you have Porzingis, you have White, you have Drew, you have Al, you have Hauser, you have Pritchard, etc. So talent-wise, I believe that this Celtics team is deeper than the team that you had in 08. And that team, remember, here's the thing that hurts that Celtics team historically. They won a championship. Like, the banner's going to be up there for forever, right? But in terms of the playoff run, they went to seven games against Al Horford's Atlanta Hawks. They went seven games against LeBron and the Cavs, or it was basically just LeBron. And they went six against the Pistons. Okay, that was impressive. And six against the Lakers. But that Celtics team, as I indicated there by how long the series was against Atlanta and Cleveland, that was not a dominant postseason team. Which, that's why I don't think, like if the Celtics that season had blown through the playoffs, they would have been considered like an all-time team. By the win total they had, by the net rating they had, by just the players they had, one of the best defensive players in NBA history and Kevin Garnett, like they would have been way up there. But they weren't a great postseason team that year. I do believe that that could have happened in 09 now that they had gone through the battles together, so to speak. This Celtics team, the East, if the maturity is there, like we are saying here, they could have a dominant run through the Eastern Conference, right? And if they do do that and they win the championship, I think historically they will pass the 08 Celtics team in terms of being considered a better team because that Celtics team struggled throughout the postseason. When you look at sort of where this team is at right now in terms of the regular season, they're on par with what the 08 Celtics did. Identical records, as we mentioned. If they have a better postseason, you have to consider them to be the better team in terms of how we look back at this in history. Now, this is still a while away. We're not even in the playoffs right now. We still got to get down the stretch of the season where Kristaps Porzingis is healthy. But I thought it was a fair enough thing to bring up at this particular point in time because now we're getting pretty deep in the season, right? When we're talking about a 45-12 and 12 record. Oh, one other thing that I wanted to talk about here about the Celtics real quick is the Celtics are still a high isolation team, but they're much more efficient this year. I'll tell you why in a second, but here's just the numbers on this. So the Celtics this year in terms of points per possession and ISO, they're seventh at 1.02. Last year, they were 19th at 0.91. Tatum and ISO this year is at 1.07 points per possession. His effective field goal percentage is 52.6%. It's in the 77th percentile. Last year, it was 0.93 points per 100 compared to the 1.07. 42.4% effective field goal percentage compared to the 52.6%. And that was in the 55th percentile compared to the 77th percentile this season. So why is it better for the Celtics and in particular with Tatum? Why is this number so much better this season? Well, part of it is the spacing is better, right? Like we have to acknowledge that. Drew Holiday is the best corner three-point shooter in the league. And he's shooting way north of 40% from three. Derek White's a good shooter. Porzingis is a good shooter. Jalen does his thing. So these guys, like there's a lot of, and even when Hauser's on the floor, when Pritchard's on the floor, 
Al's on the floor. All these guys can shoot, right? So that's certainly part of it. But the other thing is this. They're much more ruthless and methodical with their ISO game, especially Tatum, because he's the guy that has the most isolation possessions on the team. He's top five in the NBA. The reason that that Tatum's had more success is they're dictating matchups more often this season. And I think the reason for that, partially it's because it's successful, but I think another reason for that is for the postseason. Because a lot of times we'd say, oh, it's just getting into isolation basketball, right? And Tatum's just taking on his guy, like whoever's covering him. But what you notice this year is he's not doing it against just like, the I say a great defender, right? Like he's not doing this against, and I know OG didn't play on Saturday, but he's not doing it against the OG Ananobis of the world, right? He's not doing it against the Kawhi Leonard's of the world, right? Not those type of players. He's doing it against smaller players or centers, right? Where he's getting a guy that he clearly has an advantage over. So if it's a small guy, he's going to take him down low. He's going to score over him. If it's a big, he's going to get into his dribble game. He's either going to get back to his step back three game, which now he's hitting at a relatively high level over the past. Basically, I've told you the last 28 games or so is pull-up threes are going down, his step-back three is going down, but also he can bring the big out and then go buy the big. If they bring a double, he can find somebody else. But you get the point. It's just in terms of he's picking matchups. And the reason they're doing this is because when the ISO stuff went poorly in the postseason the past couple of years, it's when Tatum's like, and Jalen are trying to go at good defenders. Now what they're doing is they're finding ways offensively where they say, hey, if we run this action, Tatum's going to get this player on him, and then he can go to work, Right. And I would say the same thing, like we know the Celtics are averaging the most points in the NBA on post-ups, and it's Porzingis. And Porzingis, we've told you a million times, he's the most efficient post-up player in the NBA, but look at Porzingis. He isn't posting up traditional bigs. He's not posting up like Joel Embiid. He's not posting up the Rudy Gobert's of the world. He's not posting up the Jared Allen's of the world. No, he's posting up smaller players. It's off their actions that they run. It's like, oh, I got a 6'8 guy on me, or I got a 6'6 guy on me where I can just do damage at the free throw line. So that's one of the things that I'm looking at is in terms of, yeah, the isolation volume is up for Tatum. The post-ups are obviously way up for the team in general. They use Tatum in post-ups as well. And even they do the they do stuff with Jalen too to get him advantageous matchups, right? That's the thing I'm paying attention to because that is good stuff for the postseason when they're mismatch hunting. That's a very important thing for the Celtics to get to because when, say, hypothetically, their threes aren't falling, they get into a game where their threes aren't going down, although they got all these guys right now on the team where... Porzingis, White, and Drew Holiday. We mentioned the team stats. All those guys are north of 50% from the floor and 40% from deep during the month of February. But there's going to be a time, and we've seen it in the postseason before, where the shots aren't falling. Well, hey, okay, when our shots aren't falling, hey, let's get Tatum on a guard. Let's get Porzingis on a guard. Like, that's stuff they can now get to because of the way that they're playing offense. So I think that's a good sign. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, so I do want to get into the Bruins because... It's starting to become a little bit concerning where this team's at right now. College basketball season is heating up and FanDuel wants you to join in on the action. Right now, new customers get $150 in bonus bets when your first $5 bet wins. That's $150 extra bucks to bet anything from point spreads to money line to who's going to win it all. And I'm looking at a huge game coming up in the Big 12 on Monday night. Baylor on the road to take on TCU. Baylor just lost a heartbreaker to Houston on Saturday. They had a free throw to win the game at the end of regulation. That, of course, did not happen. They lose to Houston in overtime. TCU picked up another win on Saturday. Two really good teams. Baylor's offense is just so outstanding, though. I like Baylor to get this win on the road over TCU. If you've been thinking about joining FanDuel, there's no better time to join. The app is easy to use. When you win, you'll get paid instantly. So visit FanDuel.com slash Pike 
and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit theringer.com slash RG. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. So I wanted to transition to the bees a little bit here because they go down in overtime to Vancouver 3-2 to two on Saturday night. And if you look at it now, this is five straight games that they've gone to overtime, at least overtime, right? A couple they went into shootouts. And the scary thing is this trend keeps creeping up with this team. The Bruins can't close out games. It's been a massive issue for this team. They had a 2-0 lead entering the third period on Saturday. And what happens? You blow that lead, and then 2-1 left when there's less than what? Two minutes left in the game, you give up the goal there to send it into overtime, and you end up losing in overtime. But prior to the goal, which is basically from the blue line, slap shot from the blue line, prior to the goal, Zaka essentially ends up losing the face-off to Lindholm, which this is something that I haven't really given much thought to until recently when they're losing these face-offs in the defensive zone, is if you look at it on the season now, the Bruins are 17th in face-off percentage at 49.4%. Last year, they were second at 54.5%. Well, why is that happening? Well, because we basically took for granted that Bergeron was basically one of the best face-off men in the league for what, almost 20 years, whatever it was. He was at 61.1% last year. He won the most face-offs in the entire NHL last season in his final season. So when this is happening last night in terms of you're, you're losing a critical face-off in your defensive zone, which ends up leading to the game-tying goal, that would have been Bergeron, right? And instead, it's Zaka. And look, Zaka and Coyle are both over 50%. Zaka's at 54% of the season. Coyle's at 52%. But the point being is... That's where Bergeron comes in and you can close out that game if you had the guy that has the most Selkies in the history of the NHL and is incredible in the faceoff circle, right? So you look at it on the, in the game, Vancouver, in terms of the faceoffs, had a 41 to 28 advantage, 40.6% for the Bruins. Like they were absolutely dominant, so you, do, uh, dominated rather, so they couldn't get possession, especially late in the game where they needed to close it out in the most critical situation, Zaka ends up losing that faceoff. And this isn't a thing about Zaka. It's more just about the fact that in the past, like the Bruins would close out these games because we knew they were going to win all the critical faceoffs because they had Patrice Bergeron, right? But it's just a reminder in terms of the faceoffs over the past couple of years, like just how great Bergeron was and just like something you don't normally think about. It's now been an issue for the Bruins this year at times. And then the six-on-five situation, like, this has now been an issue for the Bruins. They, when the other team goes, pulls their goalie, the Bruins have struggled in these situations. They cannot finish these games. And you think back to Bergeron, too, right? But the question now is, they continue to blow these leads, even if some of them, they end up winning. Like, they ended up winning the Edmonton game, which McAvoy, that goal by McAvoy is just freaking ridiculous. But they end up coming they they give up they give up the lead to Edmonton but they're able to at least finish that one of course the game against Vancouver not so lucky right but they're just not playing well in a lot of areas since the all-star break and I talked about this last weekend briefly I thought this is just going to be like a little blip but now it continues to go on the Bruins now have three power play goals since the break that's tied for 25th they were and uh they were 0 for 4 on the power play against Vancouver on Saturday night even if you look at five on five since the break, they've been outscored 19 to 17. That's 20th in the NHL. Their Corsi rating since the All-Star break, which is shots on goal, missed shots, and block shots, 
45.5% in terms of the percentage. That's 26 in the NHL. So they're just not playing well right now. So yes, you've been dealing with some injuries. Hampus Lindholm's been banged up. That's a week-to-week thing. And actually, I think Mason Lorai's played good since he's been called, or I think Lorai's played well since he's been called back up. But I do think now, like as we get closer to the trading deadline, which is what, March 8th, this is now going to be an interesting decision for Don Sweeney and company at the deadline. Obviously, they have to play better, right? But right now, it feels like a lot of options have to be on the table for the Bruins. When it felt like last year, the decision-making process was a little bit easier. Because if you look at right now what you're dealing with in your own division, Florida's 8-2-0 in their last 10. They're right behind you in the standings. Toronto is 8-2-0 in their last 10. They're playing outstanding. You look in the Metropolitan, the Rangers are 10-0 in their last 10. They're on a 10-game winning streak, of course. Carolina's 7-3-0 in their last 10, and the Bruins have not played well since the All-Star break. So last year, it was this magical season. But it was like, when you think about it, you're comfortable in terms of the most, most of the stuff you have, but then you added Orloff, and you grabbed Bertuzzi because of the Hall injury. It was just a ridiculous amount of depth that they had. And Bergeron, yes, was banged up entering the postseason last, last year. But you felt like when you entered the postseason last year, you have a ton of talent. You have the most talent in the NHL entering the playoffs. That's how at least I felt. And you felt good, even though you'd like, okay, Bergeron's banged up first round. Let's get him a little bit healthier as you get ready for a long postseason run. Obviously, it didn't work out that way for the Bruins, as we all found out against Florida. By the way, maybe we should have thought back then like hey is this problem going to carry over to next year closing out games but anyway I don't want to digress too much in the playoffs last year but my point is like you felt really good about the team you felt like this team can win a Stanley Cup right obviously they were the best team in NHL history from a points perspective from a wins perspective you felt like they can win a Stanley Cup this year especially lately it doesn't feel the same way right and you look at it they could use some scoring punch but they could also use a defenseman especially when you think about it a left shot defenseman with Lindholm banged up and you look at Forbert, he just has not been great this season. And he's been banged up, but since the time that he came back, 14 games, the Beesman outscored 7-10 on 5-on-5 with Forbert on the ice. The Corsi 4 is 43.5%, which is a bad number. So he has not been impactful in a positive way for you. In fact, he was not good in that game against Vancouver on Saturday night. You look at Lindholm, if you're just comparing those two guys, and Lindholm's a top-tier defenseman, right? Obviously, Forbert's not that. Lindholm, 12 games prior to the injury in that same stretch, the Bees outscored teams 12 to 2. So it's a big difference when you don't have Lindholm out there for your team. I acknowledge that. But if you look at it, they could use a left shot defenseman, an upgrade over Forbert. They could also use a center. So here's the problem. The Bruins right now, they don't have a first, they don't have a second, and they don't have a third round pick this upcoming draft. And if you look at the following season in 2025, they don't have a second or a fourth. And... Part of that was because they went all in, obviously, to try to win last year. And I'm not complaining about them not having the draft picks. They did the right thing. They gave that group everything they possibly could to try to win a cup. They just ended up not getting it done, obviously. And then you have to think about, okay, so it's not going to be draft picks that you trade. Mason Lori would bring you a big return, but do you really want to give up one of your top-tier prospects at this point who looks good and has played well for you when he's actually been out there with the Beast? Like... He was up, he was down in this stretch. I think that he's played really well during the stretch for the Bruins. So do you really want to trade him? Potras hurt right now, dealing with that shoulder situation. Do you really want to put him on the market considering you really need center depth going forward for this organization? So 
Now, what does that mean? If you if you don't really have draft picks to give up, if you don't really want to give up prospects, what are you trading? And the other question you have to ask, are you trying to win right now? Are you trying to go for a cup this season, right? Because if you are going to go for it, that means basically trading away someone that's a contributor right now, right? Because, because last year was easy. It's like, okay, let's just get rid of the draft picks. This year, it's a little bit more difficult to sort of make a decision. So Elliot Friedman had the report that he said, quote, there's actually whispers about Olmark. I'm really careful about this, this time of year, because a lot of it becomes almost circumstantial evidence. Teams out there do believe the Bruins are trying to upgrade their roster. Okay, so is Olmark a possibility? And the other guy that I would throw out there is Jake DeBrusque, because DeBrusque is in the final year of his contract. So DeBrusque had two points and a goal, two points rather, a goal and an assist in that game, the return to Edmonton the other night for him. Other than that, in February, he's had nine of his 10 games without a point. So nine games where he has not had a point this month. So, and look, maybe you say there isn't a ton of value because he's a free agent at the end of the season. But does a team look at DeBrusque and say, hey, his speed can help us, and maybe that helps the Bruins get somebody that can help on their end. But it doesn't feel like there'd be a big return for a guy like DeBrusque. And here's the other thing I would say about DeBrusque. If you don't trade DeBrusque, and DeBrusque has a bad postseason... It's going to be really bad that you didn't trade him and get anything for him, right? Now, I'm not saying this is a likely scenario or anything along those lines. I'm just thinking through the eyes of what Don Sweeney's working with right now because he doesn't have a lot of tradable assets, if you will. Okay, so then the other thing you would look at is Allmark. You wonder what the return would be right now. At the deadline, you're not going to get a top six forward. I, I can't see that being the case, right? But last year, like when you looked at the goalie tandem, you felt this is the strength of the team. And there was no reason to break up Swayman and Olmark last year. But here's the thing that is different about this year. So last year you had the three good lines and you used the draft picks to send out to upgrade some of your lines, right? Where this year, if you're looking at your best asset, your best real tradable asset, if you're going for it, if you don't want to trade prospects, if you don't want to trade draft picks, it may be Olmark. Now, see, so that's sort of the problem here is so... You were able to have this goalie tandem last year. And without moving one of them, you went into the trading market, you got Bertuzzi, and you got Orloff, right? Huge upgrades. This team was incredibly deep. We're talking about Taylor Hall last year, a previous Hart Trophy winner, playing on your third line after he came back from long-term IR, right? So just incredible depth on this team with, with Krejci and Bergeron and Coyle as your three centers. <laughs> and then... All the guys he had around those guys in terms of the lines you were able to put together. But this year, here's the question mark when you talk about Olmark. Do you really have the luxury to say, hey, we have this great tandem and now we have this great team around him? Like, you may have to look at this and say, we got to think differently than we have in the past because we're not good enough to win a Stanley Cup right now. And maybe trading Olmark is the way that we sort of get to that level. Like I said, I don't even know what the return would be at this particular point in time if it's going to be that high for Olmark. But that may be something where... You at least have to consider that if you're the Bruins, where I think coming into the season, that's something they didn't even want to sort of have discussions about. And I can understand why, because the two goalies have sort of been the backbone of this team over the past few years. But maybe if you're trying to make a run this year, you may have to deal with Mark if you're looking for an upgrade based on the limited assets that you do, do have. Now, the name out there that everybody knows by now, Noah Hannafin, where, and Hannafin with Calgary right now, of course, grew up in Norwood, played 
at BC. So if you're looking for a defenseman, he entered Sunday with 33 points in his 58 games with 11 goals. Big guy, six foot three. And basically, if you look at what you had last year when you added Orlov, right, where you had Orlov to go along with McAvoy and Lindholm, where you had three top defensemen, right, where you had three lines of top tier defensemen or three pairings, I should say, of top three defensemen. You could do that same thing again, right? So the Bs, when you sort of look at this in terms of what this team has been able to do despite some under-the-radar numbers, so to speak. So if you look at the Bruins, their goaltending, especially Swayman this year, for the most part, has been outstanding. The Bruins, though, are just 23rd in high-danger chances against. So they've actually had some luck. Now, a part of that goes to the goaltending. Now, lately, during the stretch since the All-Star break, the luck isn't really there. But we know the Lindholm thing is a week-to-week thing. So you may want an upgrade on the blue line right away. Hannafin would certainly do that. The Flames are actually, they've outscored teams 53-40 to 40 on 5-on-5 five five with him on the ice. And this is a Calgary team that has been outscored this season. Now, the only question is, with Hannafin, is do you really want to give up something for him now? Because he is an unrestricted free agent at the end of the season. And he is a local guy that wants to play for the Bruins, right? So that is sort of part of the calculus. If you're Don Sweeney, are you giving something up now when you know you could probably sign him in the summer? So that's going to be something you got to ask yourself. But the other thing I would say about that, which makes this difficult, is, okay, well, if you don't make that trade, and like I said, I don't even know what the pieces would be to pick up a guy like Hannafin. But if you don't make that trade, does another contender make that trade, right? Because if another contender makes that trade, they could bring him in and give him a long-term extension. That would be the calculus in terms of something that you got to think about. So I just feel like last year, the decision-making process for Sweeney was so easy, where he is essentially saying, I'm just looking to upgrade this team. Hey, Taylor Hall's hurt. We don't know what the situation is. I'm going all in going for Bertuzzi. The Orloff thing was a great move, and Hathaway came over in that deal as well. But when you looked at that move in terms of Bertuzzi, he said, I'm doing everything I possibly can to win. This year, it's a lot more difficult to figure out what am I giving up? What type of player am I identifying? Because right now you could use a center. You could use a left shot defenseman as well. What am I willing to give up? So I just think Don Sweeney's job at the deadline is so much more difficult than it was last year. And I'm fascinated to see what they do. But I will say this. I think we're at the point because now we have this stretch post All-Star break, if you will. I think we're at the break where they need something. They need some sort of shakeup, if you will, for lack of a better term, to try to make a stretch run here to get into, of course, they're going to be in the playoffs, but to actually be a legit contender when you get there. Because I think the way that things stand right right now and some of the teams that I went through, I don't feel like the Bruins are on that same level with those teams right now, despite the start that they had to begin the season. All right, coming up next, we'll bring in producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. 
on your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm great, Brian. Excited for the Celtics. You got me excited. Um, how are you? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. It was a nice little Saturday. Watched a mm-hmm. couple of games. Felt good about one. Did not feel particularly good about the other one. We'll see how the Bruins sort of finish out the season, see if they do anything yeah. at the trading deadline. I enjoyed watching episodes three and four of Dynasty again over the weekend, which was fun. I can't wait to talk to Matt Hamachek about that. I feel like this one, based on some of the reaction I've seen on social media, just talking to some people about this one, these two episodes, a lot more controversial than the first two. I'll say that. So I'm interested to get Matt's reaction to some of the stuff that was in episodes three and four. And I don't, like I said, I don't want to get too much into the details, but there's going to be some, there were some fans that were upset about the the last two episodes. So we'll see what Matt has to say about some of the stuff. And it's not like, it's not like they're upset about. What are they, what are they mad about? No, just the fact that one of the things that is brought up to me and it's all Mm -hmm. over social media is that the big, long winning streak wasn't oh, yeah. really talked about from 03 to 04. So, and the thing that I said, because one of my brothers texted me about that as well. I'm like, I, I understand why some fans are, and I think it's like, I saw Matt Chatham tweet about it. I understand why some fans are upset about that because that was, for a two-year period, like the Big one deal. of the best stretches in Patriots history, right? Like they were unbelievable. But I think part of the reason is it, there's just not a lot going on, right? Like, it's it's like a football thing. Right. It's like, okay, we can talk about how, oh, they got Corey Dillon. How great was Corey Dillon in 2004, right? But it's like, okay, if I'm making this documentary and I'm not just talking to Patriots fans, right? Like, I'm talking about, I'm talking to people in Ohio, people mm-hmm. in, well, I guess Michigan would be interested because, of course, Brady <laughs> went there to college, but... I'm talking to people in Florida, in California, and I, I keep saying states that Brady is like, <laughs> like re- related to, right? Because he grew up in California. But Texas, Oklahoma, you get the point. It's like other states across the country and other people are going to watch this documentary. I don't think they're super interested in the 03, 04 Patriots yeah. just dominating everybody, right? Like, I, I don't think that's interesting to them. I think what's interesting to those fans is the Spygate situation, Right. I think that the first Super Bowl is much mm-hmm. more interesting from a narrative standpoint, from a storytelling standpoint, than the long winning streak. So that was sort of the one complaint I saw on social media is people were complaining that that winning streak wasn't covered that much. But I I mean, I probably would have enjoyed it just from somebody that's like, you know, if I'm going to get this like Patriots stuff and it's all good stuff. Yeah, like I'll be interested in that. But I do think like if you're going to tell all these stories, like what are you taking out? I don't think that winning streak is and that stretch is worth a whole episode. I definitely agree with you in, in terms of a whole episode. I, I wrote this too. Like it definitely I noticed as well because it's it felt like it was 20 seconds basically like this montage of good times. But um, so I think, you know, you could give it a little more time. But at the same time, I think Hamachek and the whole team has done a really good job doing this kind of unorthodox uh narrative like you said like i love that they spent so much time on the first super bowl like two and a half episodes and it's working so i'm just gonna give them the benefit of the doubt and i trust them basically so yeah they're making unusual decisions and and i get that that might throw some people off but i definitely can't argue the results in my opinion yeah i think the one other thing you could say in terms of that period from 03 to 04 that isn't discussed really in the documentary in and i'm sure this is why like maybe like a guy like Matt Chatham tweets about it is like they had Manning's number. Yeah. So like the domination of talking about 
Yeah, and I don't even think if Manning versus Brady. I think like the defense against Manning, like they just yeah. dominated him, yeah. right? So and like the goal line stand wasn't covered, right? So I think that's probably why some Patriots fans are upset. But I understand why it wasn't a big part. But I, I do understand like what the fans are saying too. All right, Jamie, let's get to a call. That number is six one seven three nine six seven one seven two. Hey, Brian, this is Patty in Brooklyn by way of Springfield, Mass. Great job on the, the Boston sports draft. I think we're all winners in that one. And since you mentioned great days in Boston sports history, I want to nominate a 24-hour period between October 10th and October 11th, 2021. You might remember that as the, the nights when Christian Vasquez beat the Rays in the ALDS. Uh, I was in the, I was at Fenway and, guys were taking their shirts off and waving them around and all that. And then the next morning was the never-before-seen, never-to-be-seen-again October running of the Boston Marathon. Uh, it was a great, great 24 hours. Uh, definitely got appropriately lubricated. And uh, shout-out to my little brother, Tim Shea. He finished that marathon in two and a half hours. He's a psycho, but I'm proud of him. And finally, shout out to uh, to my wife now because she was with me on that day watching the Kembrell Thompson's catch and the David Ortiz Grand Slam, and she was with me uh, at Fenway and on Heartbreak Hill in 2021. Thanks again, Brian. Keep up the great work. Bye. All right, Patty, that's a good call, and congratulations to your family members for running the marathon. I forgot about that, that we had an October marathon because... I think that was because of COVID, right? Because if you say that was 2021, yeah, that must have been because of COVID. So push back the marathon. And that Red Sox game is a classic. I was at my former employer at the time, and it was a 1-1 series at that point. And you felt like whoever won that game was going to win the series. And you felt really good going into it because you had Avaldi on the mound. And Avaldi was just a great big game pitcher, as we recently saw with the Texas Rangers. So you felt great about it. But that game had so many storylines. Because you had a play that I've never seen in my life. And when I was watching the game, I didn't know the rule. So, and it appeared that not many people on in either dugout knew what the rule was going to be. Kike Hernandez, I remember after the game, was like stunned. He's like, I don't know. And remember, Kike turned into Babe Ruth during that postseason <laughs> run. He was like, Kike, you couldn't get him out. Like, he was incredible. But what happened was the ball goes over... Hunter Renfro, it was Kiermaier hit it over Renfro's head. Renfro's chasing it down. It bounces off the wall, ricochets back near Renfro. It hits Renfro. It goes into, it goes over the wall. So you're thinking, what is the rule, right? Because it's not like it hit Renfro and went over the wall. So it's not a home run, but what is it? Is it a ground rule double? So Diaz would have scored, right? So it actually ends up being a double for Kiermaier. But here's the thing. Diaz was was going to score. So it actually took a run away from the Rays because the ball went out of play. Because the ball went over the fence, the Red Sox actually caught a break there. And then the game just kept going on after that, right? Because then, I mean, if I was the Rays, like, it's not like the umpire is actually, it was ruled correctly. It's just like, that is such a horrible break. That is such bad luck for the Tampa Bay Rays. Not that I'm crying for the Tampa Bay Rays and I was rooting for the Red Sox. But I just remember, like, that whole game, as it went 13 innings and you got like knots in your stomach watching it because you just didn't know who was going to come through. And so you had Avaldi went like five innings and then Cora played the mat- mismatch, the matching up hitters game. At one point he brought Taylor in and that got Choi out of the game. 
Like they were matching up guys left and right. Cash and Core were going back and forth, seeing who they could match up. Eventually, it just ends up being, being hey, Nick, Favetta, it's your game. This is your game. <laughs> you're, you're throwing the rest of this thing. Pavetta goes four innings. He struck out seven. He was awesome. And that's when Pavetta was doing the primal screams. Because remember, Pavetta at the end of the season, like, Pavetta wasn't great that year. He had moments, but he wasn't great. And he just had this moment against the Washington Nationals at the end of the regular season, the last day of the regular season, which I, if I remember correctly, this was the same day, I think it was October, it was, it was around October 3rd, 4th or 5th. It was the same day that Brady came back to Tampa or came back from Tampa to play yeah. the Patriots. Nick Pavetta against the Nationals, Juan Soto, walk-off strikeout, where he threw a curveball to him. Juan Soto couldn't offer. Like, it was that it was that good of a curveball where Juan Soto couldn't offer at it. And it was just like, holy shit, this is crazy. Like, because you thought the Red Sox, we didn't know what was going to happen. Because the Red Sox were scratching and crawling just to get in. Because their bullpen was a mess down the end of that season. So it was a battle for them just to get into the postseason. And then what happens is during the postseason, as we saw in 18, Cora's using starters under the bullpen. In this case, Pavetta was awesome for the Sox during that run in the postseason. So anyway, Pavetta's awesome doing primal screams. And you're still waiting for something to happen. And then finally, Vasquez hits the moon ball. And the Red Sox take the lead. They go on to win the series. But that was just like... That was amazing. That was nerve-wracking. That was just an absolutely insane... It was an insane game because you had extra innings. You had managers going back and forth trying to get the right strategies in because, remember, that Tampa team, they had basically, they had a lineup for lefties. They had a lineup for righties. They were incredibly deep. And then you had a crazy call that we've never seen before. You had extra... You had everything. You had extra innings and you had, of course, the Sox Mm -hmm. coming away with that win so that's a good call that's a good one i i didn't i didn't think it's a good point bringing up the marathon because it was connected to that that time as well so that that was just that was absolutely insane that was an absolutely insane game that was a great see this is why i talk about the red sox just get into the postseason because who knows what happens when you get there everybody was projecting the red sox to lose to the race i actually picked them to win and this isn't just me like making this up because i will say even though in my head i thought they would lose to the astros because one of the issues is the Astros that year struck out fewer times than anybody else in Major League Baseball, and the Red Sox defense wasn't good. I mean, shocker. We've been talking about this for three years, so I'm like, they're going to put <laughs> yeah. a lot of balls in play, and the Red Sox are going to struggle. But at the end, I just ended up picking the Red Sox. But the Rays, I thought they would win. Even though that Rays team was a juggernaut, they won 100 games. The reason is because they always do these, like, the bullpen nice. stuff. And a lot of these relievers for the Rays over the years, by the time they get to the postseason— they're actually burnt out. So that's the reason I picked the Red Sox to win that series. But even like me, for somebody that picked them, I was shocked by the way it sort of happened because it's just, I mean, that game's the difference in the series. If you lose that game, you probably lose the series. That was a really fun and crazy year. Like you mentioned that game against the Nationals. They basically had, what, like two must-win games just to get there. They had to beat the Nationals. There was like four teams fighting for those wild-card spots. And then they had to beat the Yankees in that one-game playoff. And then they beat the, I think the, where the Rays were the one seed, I'm pretty sure, that year. And it's just, it's it's unusual for a Red Sox fan base. Every time that kind of year happened, we won the World Series, except this year. And uh, I, yeah, know, well, so I, was, I really thought we were going to go all the way when Schwarber hit that home run against the Astros or something. Oh, yeah. Well, and to like the Yankees game. You knew That's they were winning game. that game once. Yeah. The, the Yankees game, you knew they were going to win. 
because that crowd was just absolutely insane. Because remember, Remy was really sick at that time. He had yeah. been away from the broadcast booth. They bring him out to throw the first pitch and X out there to catch it from him. The crowd was just electric. And then they just fucking ambushed Cole. Like Cole. they were all over Cole. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They own Cole still. I mean, they, they ambushed Cole. They went that, that, that was awesome. It's one of my favorite Red Sox like wins, non like, I guess yeah. just one of my favorite wins. I mean, I like obviously nothing's going to pass like the 04 team where you had the back to back walk offs going back in time with Ortiz. The walk-off catch by Benintendi against the Astros, like that's obviously a crazy win. So, it, like, but it's definitely up there in terms of wins that this team has had. That was just that was an awesome win against, especially considering like who the opponent was. Yeah, that it was actually the Yankees. Yeah, and then yeah, the Astros series. I mean, they had a real chance in that series. And then I'm still like, I remember having these conversations at the time. I think it was after Game One. Uh, my buddy Lou Merloni, who of course we have on the pod a lot, he brought it up too. Like. The Astros dude, the ball guy, he just he doesn't get out of the way. He just like wouldn't get off his his chair like he doesn't move. That home field advantage. Yeah, it's kind of weird. (laughs) But the Astros eventually figured out how to pitch to the Red Sox. Kike came back down to earth and they just they couldn't bounce back after that. But I mean, no shame in losing to that team. They're obviously fucking loaded. Yeah, I mean, they're the best. Base. I would say it could not be clearer difference between postseason success between the Rays and the Astros, considering, you know, they, they're probably the two best teams the last five, ten years in the AL in the regular season, but then completely different in the playoffs. Yeah, so that, my point, though, is just like in terms of getting back to what I was saying about just getting in. Who, who knows? I mean, the yeah. Red Sox knocked off a 100-win team. The Diamondbacks beat the Brewers. They weren't, weren't supposed to beat the Brewers. The Diamondbacks yeah. beat the Phillies. Dodgers. They weren't supposed to beat the Phillies. The year before that, the Phillies weren't supposed to go to the World Series, so just get in. Yeah. I don't know, Brian. I saw, I saw Raphael Devers hit a home run today. I was like, you, you think we convince ourselves that they can get in this year? Well, I mean, I think I don't want to sound like, oh, you're. it's obvious, Brian, but it, it all comes down to what they're going to do with this pitching staff because yeah. Montgomery. I feel good about the lineup. I've said that on multiple occasions. It's going to be interesting what they do with the outfield because you obviously have Tyler O'Neill that you traded for. You have now a decision to make in terms of what you're going to do at center. Is Rafaela going to be the everyday center fielder? Because you have Duran and you have Abreu, who Abreu is an interesting bat as well. Yeah. So those are four guys yeah. you're thinking about. And so that's an interesting decision you have to make. But so really, if you think about that, I think Abreu obviously gives you more offense than Rafaela does at this point in time. We talked with Ann Cundell about Rafaela, just his approach in terms of he chases a lot of pitches. Abreu is a guy that will take walks and hit for power. But Rafaela is going to be an incredible center fielder. Like, he'll be one yeah. of the best center fielders in Major League Baseball this year if he plays every day. That's just how much range the kid has. So you have to make a decision there. And then in terms of the infield, Story's really the swing player. If Story has a big year for them, I think it goes a long way because they still don't have a lot of power from the right side. O'Neill profiles as a power guy from the right side, but we'll see. He's been, you know, sort of a guy that was really good in 2021. Since then, he's been banged up but overall i feel like the defense is going to be a lot better especially if rafael is the guy in center and i feel good about what you have up the middle with story and with grissom i believe rafi's going to have a better season defensively well i guess how could he have a worse season defensively he made 19 errors last season so he can't have a worse season and i feel good about the bullpen uh cora was talking I, i can't remember if it was this morning or saturday morning about Hulk's velocity's up. Like, we see this every year. Certain guy, And this isn't like a made-up thing where it's like, 
Oh, he's coming to training camp in the best shape of his life, or he's in spring training in the best shape of his life. No, like, this is literally measured. Like, his fastball, the velocity on his fastball is legitimately up. So, I and, and I, I've said it multiple times, I'd much rather Hulk be somebody coming out of the bullpen than a starter. Yeah, for sure. Or indicated the other day that essentially Cutter Crawford it has the leg up on everybody to be the fourth starter, which I'm not surprised by that whatsoever. I figure I had him penciled in as the fourth starter, right? And we'll see what he does. Like, one of his issues is he fatigues very easily. So, because he's sort of an all-out pitcher. I mean, he gives you everything he has. That's sort of how he pitches. I mean, he's he doesn't have, like... His fastballs, I've, I've gone through it. His four-seamer is one of the best four-seamers in the game, but it's not easy. It's not easy heat that he is, right? Like, it takes a lot of effort for yeah. him to get through a game. So him in the four spot, and then we'll see about the five spot. That's why I said, like, I, I'd rather it be Winkowski just because I feel like Whitlock and Hulk, and Look, Winkowski was great out of the bullpen last year until he sort of got tired at the back end of the season. Right. But I feel like Hulk can be a dominant reliever and— he now has a history of being bad the third time through the order. And then I would also point to the fact that Whitlock can't stay healthy when he's in the starting rotation. So I'd much rather you go with the bullpen option of Hauk and Whitlock over Winkowski. So that's going to be the question. Like, in, look, this Montgomery thing is still hanging out there. Like, if they got Montgomery, I yeah. would put money on the Red Sox making the playoffs. Like, I'd go to the FanDuel app and put it right away. Maybe I should do that now <laughs> just in case they get Montgomery because I'm not going to get the same odds. And look, Montgomery's not like one of the best starter, starters in Major League Baseball. But you know what he is? He's somebody that's going to give you between 150 and 180 innings probably this upcoming season. And you're going to feel like, okay, we have a professional on the mound that's going to give us sort of length. You project that Bayo is going to give you length. You project that Pavetta is going to give you length. So that's three guys. Yeah. And if... Then after that, you have Crawford where you're like, ah, I'm not sure how deep we want him going into games, but you also have Montgomery in the mix. Then you're like, okay, like this bullpen makes a lot more sense because what happened too with the bullpen last year, some of the numbers don't look as good because they were tired and they were working so yeah. often that you you couldn't put them and three in like starters. Because a lot of times like you're, wait, <laughs> you, yeah, like you're waiting sometimes for like Martin and Jansen for high leverage situations. But then what happens is, oh, we're not in a high leverage situation for three, four games, right? So that's that's sort of the difficult part about this is just sort of figuring out which guys you're going to use in certain situations. And if you have a starting rotation that is actually giving you length, that makes it a lot easier. So hopefully the situation will just eventually take care of itself because it's one thing. I don't know. I just start to get more and more aggravated with the offseason right now. And one theory that is interesting to me that's been floated out there. Actually, the first time uh -huh. I heard it was our buddy Joe Murray, who's on the pod. Murray basically said his theory. He asked me about this the other night on the Sports Hub, which I thought is an interesting theory. So he thinks that this is John Henry that is like not essentially spending the money that oh, yeah. he obviously he's the owner. So that goes without saying. But that the other other people in the organization, not front office guys, but people involved in the ownership group, maybe they actually do want to spend money. Because remember, Tom Warner, we've been shitting on him all offseason for the full throttle comments. That same thing, like Sam Kennedy out there talking about how aggressive they were going to be, right? So yeah. maybe it's Henry that's the one that's saying, like, maybe everybody else is under the impression they were going to spend. And then John was like, I actually no, we're working on this other business deal with the PGA and... And obviously, Warner's in these conversations, but I do wonder that. Like, is there an issue within Fenway Sports Group? It's just an interesting theory. But I was, I was thinking about it. I'm like, you know what? That like, that's not a bad theory because that would actually make what 
Tom Warner was saying, yeah. that would actually make a little more sense. Because why would you say that if you didn't think you were going to spend money? I, I've i heard that theory float around, and I agree that it does make sense. I, I think the only thing I'm, I'm looking for that I'm not seeing is I'm not seeing like any sort of conflict between them like they don't i don't know why like if i like you said if i was warner i'd be kind of pissed if if he keeps like nixing these deals and stuff like that and i feel like that hasn't spilled out in the open quite yet but um it's something to note on if he keeps doing this but because i don't know it's just it would be weird if like you said if it seems like kennedy and warner are more invested and at some point i think i'd start to get frustrated if henry is dragging his feet yeah and i don't know like i said this is just a theory that Murray I, it makes sense to me it was an interesting one so i figured i'd bring it up it's a great theory. I wish I thought of it. It's a great theory. All right, Jamie, good <laughs> stuff, man. Thanks, Brian. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in, 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. We'll be back in just a couple of days with Matt Hamachek. And thanks for producing this podcast to, of course, producer extraordinaire Jamie McClellan and Steve Cerruti. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Kentucky, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, Vermont, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text NEXT STEP to 53342 in Arizona. 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia or call one 800 522 4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in